This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Blaschenberg, and I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today, we're going to talk about the NICU and really how parents can navigate that and what they can expect. So we have Dr. Sue Hall to talk about navigating the NICU. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Dr. Sue Hall has been a neonatologist for nearly 30 years, and before that, she worked as a master's level social worker. She has a BA from Stanford University, an MSW from Boston University, and an MD from the University of Missouri, Kansas City. She completed training in pediatrics and neonatology at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, then joined the faculty of UCLA's David Geffes School of Medicine, where she affiliated for 19 years. Now in private practice at a community hospital NICU in Southern California, Dr. Hall is a board member of the National Perinatal Association and has numerous publications in the scientific literature on the topic of psychosocial support for NICU parents. She's also the author of a book about life in the NICU titled For the Love of Babies, published in June 2011. Hi, Sue. How are you? Very well, thank you. Good thank- to be here. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for your time. So I'd love to jump into just simply what brought you to the path of working in the NICU. Well, it's kind of a long and winding road, but (laughs) um, I started off in college as um, a major in psychology and human biology. And then I became a teacher, like a special education teacher for a couple of years. And then I went to social work school and got a master's. And all of my work essentially was with um, children who had developmental disabilities. And so I always sort of wondered, you know, how did they get that way? What, what happened? And in some cases, they had medical conditions. And in some cases, they had been premature babies. So I just got this notion that I wanted to... Um, be involved with babies at the very beginning of their lives to try and make their start as optimal as possible. And so I could, you know, see how these things happen and uh, try to make them better. Oh, that's, so. that's great. Yeah. I mean, my husband's a social worker. So I think uh, people that choose that path and choose to help others is uh, they're special people and they have a big heart. <laughs> so I guess also we should define what is the NICU? Well, the NICU is a place where babies who need any type of care greater than what can be provided on your standard mother-baby unit have to go to the NICU. Um, Things have kind of changed over time in that babies used to be cared for, you know, healthy term babies used to be cared for in a nursery and then taken out to their moms for feeding and such. And so the nurses had an opportunity to Um, observe and evaluate the babies and uh, send them on if they needed a higher level of care. 
but now with all of the babies rooming in, it's kind of like if the nurses can't keep their eyes on the baby and there's a question about how the baby is doing, the baby will usually have to go to the NICU to be observed. And, and if the baby needs any sort of special monitoring, like heart rate monitoring, oxygen monitoring, you have to go to the NICU because that can't be done in most standard mother-baby units. Are there different levels of NICU or are they pretty much, um, you could have a, a baby that just needs a little more monitoring along with a very premature baby in the same space? Well, you, you definitely can have that situation with different levels of illness or prematurity in the same NICU, but there, there are uh, three levels of NICUs, level two, level three, and level four. And some hospitals may only have a level two, which limits the type of babies they can care for. They cannot care for babies who are less than, I think, 32 weeks gestation, and they cannot care for babies on ventilators. So even though you may give birth in a hospital that has a quote-unquote NICU, it might not be a high enough level of NICU to take care of most of the standard problems. Level 3 NICU is pretty much your average NICU that can take care of very tiny babies and uh, babies on ventilators, but um, it is distinguished from a level four hospital in that it does not have a lot of pediatric subspecialists that babies might need consultation with. So, for example, um, a level four NICU is going to have infectious disease, hematology, nephrology, you know, all of the pediatric subspecialties. Um, and mostly those are going to be the large academic medical centers. So whatever... Uh, level NICU a baby is born in, let's say they could be born in a level two and transferred to a level three. And then the level three says, well, we can't take care of this level baby either. So we're going to send them on to level four. That must be so hard on the parents, which is what we'll definitely get to as we progress our conversations that, you know, you, someone might expect just to give birth and everything be okay where they are. And then things get shuffled around. Um, what are some of the reasons a baby may end up in the neonatal intensive care unit? Well, probably the biggest one is prematurity. So um, most hospitals, any baby that is born less than 36 weeks will have to go to the NICU because we have a lot of research that shows us that even those babies may be of a normal size or a good size, say six or even seven pounds, they uh, don't transition as well um, after birth. So they have trouble maintaining their temperature. They're not very good feeders. Um, so if they're cared for in a normal nursery with uh, mother, baby, rooming in and such, they they tend to get discharged early, and, like in the standard two to three days. But they have very high rate of readmission to the hospital because once they get out of the hospital, they can't do all of the things that they're supposed to be able to do. So prematurity is number one, and then other common causes are breathing problems, especially after C-section delivery, uh, because it's harder for babies to clear the fluid out of their lungs when they're born by C-section. Um, suspected infection, sometimes jaundice. Um, those are the those are the main reasons. The main. Of course, any type of congenital anomalies. 
Yoga Birth Babies is sponsored by Health IQ, an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, yogis, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. Go to healthiq.com backslash YBB to support the show and see if you qualify. And I'm guessing some of those things, some of the anomalies might be known ahead of time through ultrasounds. Um, yes, most of the time they are, but not always. Right. So I guess at least if they're known ahead of time, the parents can kind of draw their mind around what they might be facing as opposed to, um, it was premature and they weren't expecting it. I've had a few friends that have had that pretty early that things just happened. Uh, one of my friends had placental abruption at 28 weeks and her baby's in the NICU for a while, you know, and those things can just happen out of the blue as opposed to if you knew ahead of time and you kind of wrap your mind around it. Which yes, can... we, we try to have consultations with parents who know they're going to give birth to a baby with a congenital anomaly, especially if it's um, a significant one, such as a heart defect. We try to educate them and prepare them of what to expect so it's not, you know, all tra- traumatic once the baby is well, what are some of the challenges that parents may face when they have a baby in the NICU? Well, probably the number one challenge is just the separation from their baby and um, feeling, you know, kind of disconnected, like the, the doctors and nurses are taking care of the baby and they don't really have a role. Um, so finding their role as a parent within the NICU is very key for them. And, um, working to establish the bonding that normally takes place may be um, more difficult because they might be intimidated by the equipment, they might be intimidated by the condition of the baby and think the baby is very fragile. So um, if, if that's the case, they um, need to ask the NICU staff how they can interact with their baby in a positive way so that both baby and parents get the positive benefits of bonding. Well, what would be some of those ways, ways be that they can still bond with their, with their baby? And does the NICU staff try to support that? Like, would they, if the parent's being timid and nervous, uh, does the staff, and I know they're probably crazy busy, um, but could they, would they step in and introduce, like, you can still do kangaroo care or let me help you with breastfeeding? Well, that's their role. That's what they're supposed to be doing. I think that Um, How that comes across probably varies a bit from NICU to NICU and nurse to nurse. But that's sort of one of my personal um, things that I am working on is making sure that NICU staff know what parents need and how they can help fulfill those needs. But yes, what parents can do, um, number one is provide breast milk for their baby because they're the only ones who can do that. Um, and as you said, kangaroo care or skin-to-skin care is is very um, helpful to both parents and baby. Lots of both physical and physiological and psychological benefits to both. Um, um, if the baby is too unstable or too small for kangaroo care, then um, certain types of touch are helpful to the baby, um, talking to the baby, um, providing your scent to the baby. So most NICUs now have little cloths that uh, parents can um, wear on their body, so to speak, like moms can put it in their bra for uh, 6 to 12 hours, and then it's given to the baby in the isolate so the baby 
becomes familiar with mom's scent. So there's a lot of ways that parents can be involved. And um, another big push is to try and get parents involved in doing cares for the baby as soon as possible, such as um, changing the diaper and taking the temperature and uh, that sort of thing so that they don't feel like they're visitors to the NICU, but they feel like they're actually the parents doing something. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. That's great because I can imagine that they there could be a sense of being timid when the baby, if the baby's really small and fragile, they may not know what to do or how to help. And if that does happen, if a parent's there and they, they're not sure, is there a way they can advocate and try to understand a little more what's the care that's going on and how they can better help? Well, there's a couple of ways. One is ask if they can attend medical rounds. That's sort of um, a concept or a practice that is coming more into practice that, you know, it used to be that doctors and nurses would just go around and talk about all the patients and parents were actually asked to leave the NICU during that process. So um, there's research showing that parents want to be involved in rounds and benefit from being involved in rounds. And what that essentially does is bring, bring the parent more into a partnership with the medical team instead of having the medical team be experts and parents being just the, the, the people who are sitting there waiting to hear what's pronounced from on high, they can actually give their opinion and uh, participate in decision-making. So um, asking to be in rounds, asking to have care conferences and daily updates. You know, one other thing about the doctors in the NICU is they're kind of running around from patient to patient and they're in and out and they're all over the place to the delivery room, back to the NICU. So it may be hard for parents to uh, quote unquote catch a neonatologist who can give them an update, but they just need to ask. And if they ask, the nurses will find the doctors and the doctors will come speak with them. That's great. Because imagine being overwhelmed. I mentioned I had a couple of friends that have faced this. And, you know, I remember visiting one and she's like, I haven't talked to the doctor. I have no idea what's going on. And it was, it was hard, which is why I actually am doing this podcast is because it's something I don't think a lot of parents think they're going to face. But when they do, it's good to at least start to have some support, which leads me to um, how can parents find support? Because emotions are so high at this time. Well, um, there's a couple of answers to that. One is for them to activate their personal support network, which means their family and friends. And that has a caveat to it. that sometimes family and friends actually make parents feel worse because they say things like, oh, everything's going to be okay and, you know, get over it and move on. And uh, when you're the parent and uh, your baby's in the NICU, it's very different. And um, some friends and family are themselves grieving over the fact that a baby was born at 23 weeks or has a big problem. And, uh, and so they may not want to get into the emotional part of it. And so they might discourage the parents from doing that. So, um, 
The other thing is family and friends may be far away. Let's say the baby had to be transferred from a level two to a three to a four. It may be, you know, 100 miles from their home and they may be displaced from their support network. But whatever they can do to find a support network, um, they can um, ask the hospital if it has a peer support program. And peer support programs are basically... Um, Parents who have gone through the NICU and uh, been out of the NICU for usually at least one or two years, so they've sort of processed their experience, and then they come back to help the parent walk through their NICU experience. And sometimes this is done in person, sometimes it's by telephone and text contact, and sometimes you know there are certainly a lot of internet groups, Facebook groups, things like that, where parents who have babies in the NICU can connect with other parents who have babies in the NICU. Um, well, they can well, also ask to speak to the hospital social worker. Some NICUs now have psychologists. So if they're certainly feeling acute distress, they should definitely ask for help in figuring out how to um, get support resources. It's great that the hospital can be a support because I'm sure at that time the parents are really looking to them for um, a lifeline of how to get through this. Does who, if you're mentioning that sometimes I have to go from a two to a three to a four and it might be far away from where the parents live, would the hospital be able to provide? Do they have room ins or help with travel, places to stay? What's how can how can parents navigate that? Well, the best way to navigate that kind of stuff is, again, to um, ask to speak to the hospital social worker because they're sort of tasked with um, that kind of thing, um, you know, physical and um, financial support and things like that. Um, those, those are difficult issues, and hospitals vary. Uh, some hospitals have private room NICUs where the parents can stay in the room and actually literally room in with their baby. That's sort of the newest trend, but certainly not all NICUs have that. Some NICUs have rooming in rooms or rooms where parents can board, like the hospital I'm working in now. We have, If we have open rooms on the maternity unit, moms can stay in those rooms even as they're not patients. But if more and more moms come in to deliver than those parents who are boarding have to leave those mm-hmm. rooms. Um, and some hospitals, social workers have sort of lots of money at their disposal to help with transportation and so on. And some don't provide any help at all. Yeah. It could be so expensive. The, the friends I've had, luckily they were in New York, uh, New York city where we have some great hospitals. So they were within walking distance, but one of my friends in particular, she was there every day, all day, just a few blocks from her house. But I could imagine if, you know, if, if you're not used to being in a city or you don't have the funds, not only is it overwhelming to have a baby that's sick in a NICU, then you have the financial stress and that can just add to the whole situation. Yes. Another, another financial stress is if parents have to stay off of work, um, longer than, they otherwise would have, you know, if they choose their baby over their job, then they have diminished financial resources. And if they choose their job over their baby because they have to, quote unquote, to keep their insurance or whatever, then they're going to be feeling guilty about not spending time with their baby. 
Oh gosh, the emotional part of this is, is so great. So what kind of range of emotion um, might a parent be going through during this? Well, number one is guilt and thinking that there's something that they did or didn't do that caused this to happen, whatever it is, whether it's a premature birth or a sick baby or a congenital anomaly, parents always tend to blame themselves, even when there's no rational reason for it. It's a normal way to respond to the situation. Um, others, of course, fear is huge. Almost every parent thinks their baby's going to die, even when the medical team thinks it's, you know, a really small and insignificant problem, um, or a baby born, say, four or five weeks early, parents just fear the worst because their baby's been taken with them and sort of labeled as having a problem. Um, shock, disbelief, um, anger, anger at people who have healthy babies. Um, it's really hard. Let's say a mom has a very premature baby and then her other friends are pregnant and they deliver healthy babies and, you know, life seems unfair, which it sometimes is. So a huge range of emotions. So would you suggest if someone's going through this to be really um, mindful of who they choose to be their support system? Yes, because as I was mentioning, not everybody who intends to be supportive actually is supportive. So the parent really needs to take care of themselves first. And if family members are bringing them down or not being supportive, they just need to set their boundaries and, you know, primarily interact with the medical team themselves and not listen to outside opinions. Well, you brought up a great topic about the parents taking care of themselves. Cause I can imagine during this time, it's really easy for the parents to neglect their own needs, especially for a mom. If she had a challenging birth here, she is trying to recover from that. What are some ways you think that we can encourage friends and family to help the parents take care of themselves? So the parents to remember to take care of themselves. Well, the kinds of thing, the kinds of help that parents should ask for is people to uh, bring meals to them or prepare food for them or take care of their other children, you know, take away some of their responsibilities so that they can focus on themselves. Um, moms who have C-sections, you know, aren't supposed to drive for six or eight weeks, whatever it is. So sometimes they might need help with transportation. Um, so those sort of practical ways of helping will give the parent more time to focus on themselves. But we see a lot of parents who uh, sit at the bedside and don't want to leave and get more and more exhausted and more and more stressed out. And at some point, the medical team will step in and suggest that the parents need to go home and take care of themselves, get some rest, make sure they're eating well, because otherwise they'll just be um, out of commission by the time the baby gets home. So let's shift a little bit to everything hopefully is progressed well, baby is happy and healthy. We're talking about kind of the emotion of it. I would imagine if all of a sudden you've had a sick baby, it's been in the NICU, uh, you've had the support, the fear that might be surrounded of taking baby home. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it's some parents will say it's the scariest day of their hospital stay is the going home day. 
And that might be if they've been in a hospital where they haven't been much involved in the care of the baby. They haven't been rooming in with the baby. They don't know their baby that well. It's kind of the model where the doctors and nurses take care of the baby and then, quote-unquote, give it to the parents on discharge. Uh, and they haven't done much bonding, things like that. It's, it's very frightening. So the best cure or the best prevention for that is for parents to be as involved as they can be during the NICU stay so they get to know their baby, so they do the hands-on care, so they feel confident at the time of discharge. And for NICU staff, it's a challenge to, uh, we always say, start discharge planning on the very first day, right at admission. Um, and that means, you know, empowering the parents to um, care for their babies themselves. Yeah, because I can imagine if, you know, you've had the help and then I was like, oh my gosh, now I have. And I remember just um, caring for my kids by myself for the first time and I had, you know, full-term healthy babies and it was overwhelming. Imagine taking home a baby that had been sick. Um, Do they support the nurses you mentioned trying to support breastfeeding? Is it something that is typically supported the whole time in the NICU and by the time the moms leave, they might be in a routine? It is something that is supported to a greater and greater extent in the NICU. It certainly wasn't, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago even. But there's a trend towards hospitals becoming, quote unquote, baby friendly, Mm -hmm. which is uh, embracing the World Health Organization um, guidelines and policies on breastfeeding, exclusive breastfeeding. So we know, too, that the health benefits, especially to the premature baby, of um, having only breast milk or human milk, is um, they're really high. So we very much encourage breastfeeding. Now, um, that doesn't mean that every baby is going to be nursing successfully at the time of discharge, but hopefully the baby is at least receiving pumped breast milk and also trying to nurse at the best. The transition for a premature baby, especially to learn how to nurse, um, can be difficult. But um, I would say most NICUs have lactation consultants, lactation nurses, uh, and we really spend a lot of time helping parents um, have a successful breastfeeding experience. It's pretty frustrating with the preemie because they're just so much kind of weaker and um, slower to get the hang of it. Can they get even the colostrum in the beginning? Oh, absolutely, 100%. We tell parents that colostrum is the baby's first medicine because it has so many antibodies and things that help set up the immune system for the baby. So we always um, insist on receiving colostrum, even if a parent doesn't want to breastfeed will be like, please, (laughs) can you just pump and give us the colostrum from the first couple of days? It's so, so, so helpful to the baby. So absolutely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
I'm so glad to hear that's of a support, especially the colostrum, because it's kind of thick. It doesn't go through the uh, the pump very well. Um, so I'm glad though that they're they're really supportive of that. So I want to talk. I want to kind of get a little bit back to the the emotional part, because that's what really kind of intrigues me. And it looks like, and I've read a lot of your stuff, and on your website, it looks like that's what you're deep into as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about the high stress of the baby in the NICU? Um, I read that that parents tend to suffer more from postpartum depression or even post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, what can be done to help the parents process this? Well, I think the main thing, again, is prevention. Um, some of the reasons that parents experience postpartum depression is that they feel disconnected from their babies and they feel like they don't understand their babies. They, they feel intimidated from interacting with them. And um, so they just kind of disengage and um, become depressed about all of that, as well as I mentioned, blaming themselves for the situation. So the best thing <laughs> that we can do as medical um, caregivers is uh, involve the parent as much as possible, embrace them as partners, in the baby's care, uh, respect their decisions, ask for their input, you know, really value their role as a parent and encourage them. Um, so for example, this morning I was just talking to a mom, her baby's a little bit early. She was having breastfeeding trouble and she's a first time mom and the baby would latch, but then fall asleep. And I could just see in her face that she felt like she was a failure because her baby wasn't doing what she wanted it to and what it's supposed to. And so I, I just spent some time, you know, don't give up, be positive. You're going to get it. The baby's going to get it. it. Just takes time. So it it's just if we sit and talk with people about what's going on, it's going to help things. And how did uh, she react once you gave her kind of the, the coaching, like, you can do it? Yeah, I mean, I could see her smile and kind of perk up. And she was being validated. And, you know, I said, it's nothing you're doing wrong. It's just that the baby's a little early. So parents sometimes attribute emotions to their babies, like the baby doesn't like me or the baby's you know, bad or fussy. And, and we just have to help them understand what cues the baby is giving us and why that might be. And, and then post-traumatic stress disorder, there's a lot of scary things that can happen in the NICU and near death episodes and all sorts of things. And uh, sometimes parents, let's say the baby stops breathing uh, in the old days, quote unquote, we would ask the parent to leave the room and then, you know, nobody would go with them or talk to them and we would work on the baby and they're, you know, sitting out there like, oh my God, what's going on? And this might happen a couple of times during the baby's hospital stay. So the cumulative effect of um, experiencing their own traumatic uh, things with the baby, seeing other parents go through it when they're in an open bay NICU with uh, lots of babies in one room. Um, you know, it's very traumatizing. So now we let parents stay in the room. We have somebody sort of assigned to talk to them if we are in an emergency situation. Uh, we, we try to keep them, you know, close and bonded with their baby, even if something uh, challenging is going on, uh, so that they feel like they have a little more 
control over the situation. I can imagine the lack of control really can drive someone kind of bonkers and make them feel kind of go down that dark rabbit hole of what's going on. I don't know how to support my child, myself. I can imagine that's really hard. So I want to talk a little bit about your book, For the Love of Babies. So it's stories. um, Actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Well, it's stories of 16 babies and their families going through the NICU experience. And each of the babies has a different situation. And um, what I tried to do in the book was two things. One was to uh, talk about or reveal the story of the social and psychological aspects of what was going on. So let's say, you know, I had a teenage uh, girl who didn't know she was pregnant, who came to the ER with a seizure. And, you know, why didn't she know she was pregnant? What is denial of pregnancy? Um, How did she interact with her family? Um, She gave birth to a baby with Down syndrome, I think it was. And here, you know, she's a 16 or 17 year old girl how did the family react to that and um you know so i'm i'm trying to present the whole picture not just a a very narrow medical story the second thing that i tried to do was um explain or give examples of why doctors sometimes say the things that they say because i've read a lot of Um, parent memoirs of having a baby in the NICU. And sometimes parents are very upset. You know, I can't believe this doctor said this to me about my baby. And why did they ask me to take my baby off the ventilator? Or why did they do this or that? And so I wanted to represent the physician's point of view. Uh, these, These are the reasons why we are saying these things. We need to, um, help you make informed decisions. You need all of the information, some of the information you may not want to hear, but we can't just present a sugar-coated situation like, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be fine because it may not be. Um, uh, Why do we talk about discontinuing life support? What are those circumstances? And again, it's all about informed decision-making. So um, I just wanted parents to see and kind of get a sense of what doctors face and also the anxieties and responsibilities that doctors face. Because, you know, here I am, I'm responsible for this little baby's life. It's the parent's most precious possession, if you will. And so the stakes are very, very high. And, you know, we're not just automatons uh, doing our job. We have feelings too. And I wanted to represent that. And I think it can make it more relatable for the parents to know that the care providers are really on their side, you know, that they have stress over the situation and they really want the best for that baby as well. Yes, absolutely. So you said something that that was really interesting about the parents writing a memoir. Um, and it made me think a lot about as a doula talking about the, um, the birth stories after, especially if they have been traumatic. Do you encourage parents to write out their birth stories or the, you know, their NICU experience or birth story as a healing process? Um, I personally haven't, um, done that, but I know a lot of, um, parent support group people who do and, some interventions to support the emotional well-being of parents does suggest doing that. And also, 
you know, from the point of view of, quote, rewriting your story. So the story may have been very traumatic, but rewriting it to understand, you know, why something happened because the doctors are really trying to help you or your baby um, is, is very helpful. So journaling um, can be very helpful as well. Well, have there been any areas about the NICU or the support of parents that we did not cover that you want to just put in before we start to wind things up? Um, Maybe we got it all. (laughs) I guess, you know, the only thing I would say to parents is uh, don't be timid. Um, Advocate for yourself. Advocate for your baby. And the best way to do that is going to be to connect with another NICU parent. So there's a lot of really good parent support organizations, and I'll just mention a few that have Facebook pages. One is called Hand to Hold. One is called NICU Helping Hands. Uh, one is called Project Sweet Pea. There's a whole bunch of them. Great. I'll make and sure that we put those, put those, uh, the links in our show notes. So if those that hear this may be able to get that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time and your compassion and your desire to help uh, babies and care providers and parents in the NICU because it's it's an area of high stress and concern for a lot. So thank you for your time and for your wisdom and your knowledge. No, you're very welcome. All right, enjoy your day. Take care. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.